0: very hard in this world to, to sit in the unknowing, you know, just to say I don't know, uh, but not necessarily intellectually, but to go, um, I'm, in, I'm on a continuum of 650,000 hours of mistakes of which many um, did no good at all, some did harm and some turned into fantastic compost for, for really good stuff.
1: My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Scott Rankin believes that theatre can change lives. In 1992, with John Bakes, the son of a Tasmanian potato farmer, he founded Big Heart, an arts and social justice company based in Burnie. Big Heart's motto is, it's harder to hurt someone if you know their story. Over the past quarter century, it's engaged 50 disadvantaged communities, won 35 awards, worked with 300 artists and 8,000 participants, and performed to 2.4 million audience members. Big goal is to work with communities for at least three years, providing them with a platform to share their stories and aiming to bring about sustained change. For this work, Scott's just been named the 2018 Tasmanian Australian of the Year. Scott, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thanks very much. So some of my guests have fascinating childhoods and others are doing amazing things now, but you're both, so uh, I'm, uh, I'm feeling the pressure of, uh, of time already at the start of the interview. Uh, Let's start with your, uh, your childhood uh, and how you came to be living in a junk called the Susie Wong on the Lane Cove River.
0: I'm terrified that you're so well researched. <laughs> um, well, uh, we, my parents were, I guess you'd call them 10 pound poms. Um, my father came out from Ireland and my mother from England and they married here and they had a love for the water. And they were already in trouble because they were in Sydney, and real estate prices even then (laughs) were um, made it locked some people out, shall we say? Um, But they were creative souls, and they they befriended a fisherman who was near the end of his fishing life. Um, And for those of, of your listeners who who know Sydney Harbour, there were small fishing boats in fishing in the harbour for a long, long time. And it was one of those boats, and it was it had a boat shed, and he'd sold his boat, and he said, "Well, why don't you live in the boat shed?" And so they they literally <laughs> rocked up as you do. Know. Yeah, they rocked up, um, p- paying less than two pounds a week, uh, um, and uh, just put a mattress on the rocks where the rails go down on the slipway, and then slowly, <laughs> um, my father started to build, put some floors in, and things like that. Um, I still remember living there without without a toilet or a shower or any of those things. Um, But it was absolutely beautiful. The big doors um, opened out onto the water, which is about, in in old terms, about 10 feet away. Got, you know, the high king tides at Christmas where you had to put your presents up high in case they got floated (laughs) away. Um, But the council eventually, after they built, you know, a lot lot onto the place and put floors in and all of that, um, and even a toilet... Uh, they got wind that they were living there and they said, you can't live there, but, um, you know, you could live on a boat or my dad might have asked about that. And so he looked around for a boat and he was he was very tall. Um, so it was nothing romantic. There was no kind of um, Asian Rim um, politics in it or anything like that. He just wanted a boat where he could stand up. And a Chinese junk had come for sale, um, very cheap because it had involved a tragedy, I think before yeah. we got it, um, and so he bought it, and and for 21 years they lived there. He'd say to the, to the council, no, we don't live in, in there. Um, we have a few holidays there, and we, we live on the boat, and when the Maritime Services Board or the Water Police came around, he'd say, no, no, we, um, we have some holidays uh, on the boat, but we live in the boat shed. <laughs> and that went on for 21 <laughs> years. Uh, and I've, I recently, they've, they've both passed away now, but I recently found, you know, acres of communications bet- <laughs> in letter form, you know, between them and the council. So, it, and it was a very romantic lifestyle. I, I was 16 when we were eventually um, thrown out by six squad cars of police who, who turned up because they weren't getting out on the designated day. I mean, they were nearly out, but so.
1: Wow. I want to ask you about that, but I also want to ask you about the tragedy you, you mentioned. Mm-hmm. What, what happened there?
0: Well, there were three junks that came down, a, a large one and sort of a tiny one, like almost like a sandpan, and, and ours, which was in the middle. And um, the large one uh, blew up off the coast and the little one sank in Rose Bay um, and ours kept on, but apparently a little... They had no rails, none of the sort of safety things, even when I was living on it. Um, and a little girl fell overboard with a pretty inexperienced skipper and I think, um, yeah, he tried to stop the boat which, you know, did everything wrong and she, she passed away. So, in a sense, there was a... Um, that sadness hung around Susie Wong, you know, which is the name of the junk and and also then the, the, the story of Susie Wong, you know, of the um, super smart... Um, sex worker from Hong Kong You know <laughs> Came into the the overall narrative of the boat And, and I was just thinking the other day You know um, There's a lot of really great Regulations and things that have That are put in place um, For safety But I was thinking about my parents Because I was three And they used to row me and my two sisters Who were just a little bit older Out every night um, uh no life jackets, just in a dinghy to about 100 metres offshore. <laughs> <laughs> and we would just sleep on the boat. Um, n- nothing, no handrails, nothing to stop us, you know. And then, um, you know, my father, who was sort of a um, handsome dude and and his gorgeous wife probably had the time of their life as a young couple while we were stuck on the boat. Um, and one way of ensuring the kids don't
1: bother you at night.
0: Yeah, and we used to, I remember falling in on the, you know, um, before primary school, coming ashore and falling into the river. And,
1: <laughs> uh,
0: it's classic. And all the, um, what was that school, Riverview boys, because there were a lot of very wealthy houses and families around. Mm. And a lot of them would row or they'd have putt-putts that would go take them to school. And um, so I'd watch with interest with these this very foreign life to me. The B- kids who I recognised in the land, and you just play with them, and then they were suddenly going off to school in boaters and tyres and <laughs> past your Chinese junk.
1: You paint this story, Scott, of uh, a childhood with uh, of immense material deprivation, but extraordinary happiness. Uh, is, is that uh, your sort of your ab- your abiding uh, rec- recollection? It doesn't sound like the ghosts of Susie Wong sat heavily upon you. It doesn't sound as though you you felt keenly the, uh, the the relative deprivation in, uh, in, in a financial sense with those around you? Uh,
0: no, look, I, I didn't really, f- even into adulthood, know that my parents weren't, you know, very well off because they they, uh, uh, they passed away with nothing and eventually my father had, had MS and my mother had dementia and, you know, he didn't have the body and she didn't have the mind and while they were both still alive, they were this perfect symbiotic um, couple. But they were living... Um, we got them into public housing. And it's that point that you realise that uh, this had, their romance um, of being... He was a um, kind of an in, sort of inventor and a craftsman and, and loved wooden um, interiors, making things out or getting... He ran a, a timber interior business, basically. that was award-winning and very beautiful. And, and she was passionate about early childhood and the, and the value of play... And the importance of play for um, for for children, and to see it as the work of childhood, not to see you know educational play used to bug her. You know that had free play. Mm. Um, so they both had these romantic dreams, and um, and so there was no sense of poverty whatsoever. Um, Although, you know, I remember having a piece of toast with dripping, you know, the way a certain class of people did.
1: Oh, um, my mother talks about how awful dripping was. <laughs> I didn't mind <write> it.
0: <laughs> and I remember one time um, my grandma, who was from Ireland, who was a very broken person because of the war and various things, she came out and she lived with us for a while and she she actually lived on the junk as well for a little, little while, or she was on the junk, um, but she used to have a, a midnight exercise regime and do star jumps and all this sort of thing and, <laughs> and try and get you up to do them. I thought, I thought all that was kind of cute And, and then one Sunday, she um, when my parents had taken us to church and we came home and she'd cooked this incredibly lavish lunch which involved everything in the fridge, or you know And, um, and I just remember the first time seeing my father really angry about something, and it was because, in hindsight, that that was all the food for the weekend. She'd, she'd um, thought we were having important guests and cooked it all. <laughs> it was quite a nice lunch.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you were living quite close to the edge when the squad cars arrived.
0: Um, I guess in financially we were, but no sense of poverty. You know, no sense of it was just just play, and, and it was more a sense of. You know, we had to be quiet, and um, we didn't have a TV for a long time. I think eventually there was one, Um, but it was sort of quiet. And um, I didn't have a birthday party because we couldn't, you know, really have lots of people over, (laughs) and um, and just my friend Piers would come and um, play, and then I'd I'd go to his place and um, and yeah. So there were things like the difference between. Being a bit of an outsider, I suppose the difference between our family and and others, and then the police thing was the first time that I saw, um, uh, had, you know, inju- felt an, an injustice. I suppose felt, you know, I could connect that with um, things that my father wasn't into, like Jack Mundy and the and the saving of the rocks. And I kind of was already aware, going, oh, that's that guy's doing something really good, <laughs> and. Um, seeing posters for the moratorium and things, and they were that was all way older than me, but just uh, making connections through. In hindsight, just talking to you now, I can mm. see the stitching together of a point of view or something.
1: So how did you find your way into theatre?
0: Um, the, the family didn't ever go to anything like that. The, I did see... <laughs> I had a cousin who's, whose parents were in Papua New Guinea and so he was at Tudor House in New South Wales in the Highlands, you know, boarding some of the time and then he'd have his holidays with us sometimes and I went to see this thing, this incredibly avant-garde work because having seen no theatre and having no television um, and it was called The Gondolas And, (laughs) and, you know, I was, a few times in my life I've been overwhelmed by Um, meaning rushing off something and that was one of them and I didn't want to get into theatre at all I mean I was an incredibly shy young man but I just something from that um, about the way you can exaggerate somehow um, was both uh, an answer to the ache of the being a bit alienated or a bit bit outside of things and wanting to connect and then also um, you know that you can exaggerate to make a, a point, and there was this other part of me that was focused on, you know, was quite good in the imagination of my own head um, of composing things that I would say or you know the speeches I'd make or whatever, um, even though I was super quiet. And and so there was that. And then years later, um, the f- I didn't go to the cinema for until I was well into my teens, um, uh, and must have been a holiday program or something, and we went to see. Two films, typical of my mother One was about an autistic boy who had a white horse On the moors in the UK And, and it was a double bill And the other was about a boy who had a falcon And the falcon died And I realised that that was Kez, Michael Lee's film, I think Years and years, I mean, you know, decades later Because I did try and track back what was that Because I, I, I could not move, you know I was um, kind of scared for my own Continued existence as a teenager Like I just literally um, You know, was stuck in the seat By the by the power of what was rushing off the screen And it was, looking back um, These two films were about deep, deep in, injustice and, and lack of understanding And they were beautifully writ large You know, these mm. two um, The sort of the narrative captured and, and writ at large In a way that wasn't didactic It didn't, you know, it just seemed to Meaning just suddenly came at you. And there was something about that more than the first thing I saw um, that that compelled me in a certain direction. And then I was always interested in... Because I don't think you... You know, there's a mistake of the West to think about um, uh, the arts as a commodity-based, you know, a small piece of cardboard you exchange for a mm, theatre show. Mm. I mean, we are from the second we... Um, we you know we get our six hundred fifty thousand hours and we they unfold in front of us as we kind of walk into each hour, and their chapters and and everything is is in transition all the time, and um, and how we respond to the next moment creates the moment after both as individuals and nations you know so um, when we go oh I decided to become a player I think I was always a playwright and I was always a poet and I was always a um, a. a, a very poor musician You know I was always So what happens Is that That's shredded um, By the pressures On early childhood You know My mother's son Like I think You know That gets Put away Pretty early Because We're We're very left brained And we're very binary and, and we think of Organisational skills and Which is, makes us The kind of Peak predator this kind of Apex position On the one hand But um, But When people says Say I think i will be—I'll become a writer or whatever. It's just unlocking a door that for, is locked for no reason. Um, so I don't know what I'll be later. <laughs> you know? But I, in in those years, I kind of found poetry. I found I was um, not good with words or learning, um, but I found what those twenty-six symbols were for, kind of thing. Um, and then I found music. You know, in um, not as not as in you know, a. Professional way, but good enough to be able to enjoy playing. And then I started to see that this idea of narrative, and you know, um, everything's a chapter, and so everything's in transition. So life is actually about dramaturgy. And then I didn't know that word, of course, but um, started to see you could combine Nijinsky with Francis of Assisi. You know, and 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 that that power of narrative could come at people, which I think is. Um, without, you know, s- stealing from First Nations people who are really privileged, I think it is to do with, um, you know, those deeply embedded ceremonies that capture forms of deep meaning and we are still, you know, still 10 generations into contemporary Australia as opposed to 2,000 generations. We are still um, appropriating and denying in, you know, in the way that we, we you know, and um, trying to grow into the continent and... And refine those forms of storytelling. So, what do we do instead? We um, we bring Chekhov <laughs> and restage it in zany ways.
1: <laughs> so, so let's talk about these uh, these two heroes of yours uh, Nijinsky, the uh, ballerina who could jump, they say, five, six feet in the air, or ballet dancer who could jump <laughs> five, five, six feet in the air. Um, Francis of Assisi, who uh, uh, made poverty cool for the Catholic Church. Um, why what did these two men mean to you
0: well I think um, I started looking at both those lives because um, I can't tell you the first moment that it, i found um, Nijinsky but um, you know I think I probably just fell in love with the actress in brother Sun sister Moon or you know which is an early 70s film about assisi but the actual force of it was that my my father had um, didn't have a happy relationship with Catholicism. And so I went, anything he was not happy about, I was quite prepared to look at <laughs> in a very visible way. Um, so
1: There's worse, worse forms of useful disobedience.
0: <laughs> so, I, and I, you know, I mean, I love all forms of, of symbolism and, you know, like a, so I wasn't particularly interested in those um, forms of worship that are based on... Quite distinct power structures and guilts and things, but I was very interested in when I started reading into his life um, how how he distilled uh, you know some quite profound things into very simple forms of words, you know, almost haikuish, and then how he navigated that incredibly dangerous system that he was living in politically. And I thought, you know, strategically, um, I thought that and. And yes, we romanticise all heroes, and we all, we all gravitate to the victory narrative. And you know, within the the poverty and all the things that he was, uh, he made his vows towards. He was a hero on a quest, and it w- and we do celebrate him with a kind of victory narrative. But within that, um, you know, there was this this uh, deep expression, uh, or this very uh, cogent expression of the deepest values. If you know what I mean. The, like values that have you know, if you were to try and break down what is a human being that gets the privilege of those six hundred thousand hours, you, you know, it comes down to things like um, being able to make self-limiting choices at critical moments, and um, being able to imagine the future and bring it into, you know, work it into, where, or work yourself towards it. Being able to um, respond to authority in the in the right moment, but but. Um, but know your autonomy in the right moment in the face of authority. You know, those sorts of things are really remarkable. Um, And the creature of us, you know, has has evolved our way through and maintained, you know, a kind of depth attached to the ground of being or however you want to say it. And I thought he expressed that in a life, in a a way that was Mm. really compelling to me beyond the political system of the church that he was working in. Um, And Nijinsky... Um, again, you know, there was no um, there was there was no interest in contemporary art in in my family. There was interest in you know deep craft and you know things. Um, but so it was a discovery of the. I mean, all adolescents are trying to find privacy, you know. Um, and you might do. I didn't do it through pop music, and I didn't do it through. Um, stimulants I, uh, I I did it in carving out intellectual caves that I could sit and and go I'm not you and I'm not you in terms of my parents I mean the you know that normal thing it's a normal process so you start to mm. make mm. space for yourself and and I think we often um, as adults fear that privacy which is why we pick on young people and it's why um, we use young offenders to win elections. I'm not getting into politics, <laughs> but you know we we do pick on on young people because they're making private worlds, and you want to see what they're moving into, and then we try and get, be cool as young parents, and but eventually you just give up, and you know you, you forget the emojis. You can't use them. You just look stupid. That's for all adults. <laughs> um, but so so Nijinsky was part of that, and and then I think I needed to. Um, to, to uh, see a new definition of masculinity that that, um, mm. that he had, you know, his – and I, I also loved – I suppose it was getting close to the end of high school when I was really getting into him and I, I had already um, – I was already looking for action-based, um, you know, ways of expressing the other – the Francis Assisi side. So um, – his art making and his putting his whole person on the line and his life on the line, and then eventually his sanity on the line, um, was really interesting to me. Um, not that I want to go insane, but and and also his relationship with um, Diaghilev, and which started to define, I think, producing in the 20, 20, hmm. 20th century. And
1: this is his manager producer, yeah.
0: Okay. Who who was you know, um, it was a very fractious relationship and so there's a lot about that that I was learning from I guess but
1: did you ever want to dance
0: um (laughs) well funnily enough I mean you know I'm very I'm very tall with very skinny legs so um one of the I did exchange some music lessons in this Nijinsky-esque thing with um uh with one of the bachelor family and the bachelors were well-known Sydney um classical dancers um, and she, I would teach her a bit of guitar and she would teach me um, to dance like Kermit the Frog. <laughs> like it was very unattractive. <laughs> but um, but, 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 I, but the, um, the actual thing of, of a body in space, although it's not something I can do, um, you know, the feeling of running is not that different to dance, you know.
1: You're a regular runner?
0: Um, well, I, I've become a runner. I used, to, I used to love long distance when I was in primary school. It's the only thing I could sort of vaguely do, except for sailing. But, you know, a light frame and long legs and whatever. But um, recently I've found, uh, yeah, just um, Sisters Beach in the National Park where I live in Northwest Hazards. Just um, going for a, a run as a thing while the knees are still there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you have the Bernie 10K, one of the most uh, prestigious uh, races in Australia.
0: One of the most prestigious races in Bernie. <laughs> Look, you
1: yeah, know... I've, I know plenty of serious Canberra runners who uh, go, go down for the Bernie 10K. OK, well,
0: I'll uh, see you there sometime. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Love to do it at some point. So uh, you, you move into uh, to working with disadvantaged communities through this uh, space in George Street. Uh, how did you establish that space originally?
0: Um again I guess it was the first big um strategic and arts-based approach and of just having the guts to go right here's a problem you know it was on it was on the morning radio that um the the really big cinema conglomerates had um bought George Street essentially and they they'd knocked down you know the Regent Theatre went and where was Jack, Jack Mundy at the time? I don't know. Um, um, and Couldn't save all of Sydney. <laughs> and they knocked down buildings and put up these complexes. And, again, it's a symbol of um, of you have to be careful. You know, change management is a thing. And so there were these magnets for young people in George Street. And apparently young people were coming to the city and in the holidays and then... Um, uh, Hanging around in the cinemas And then they would would eventually make themselves up And take themselves up to King's Cross or, And not go home on certain nights And then if their home life was a dangerous space anyway You know, they're in a, um, a slippery slope, potentially So we just thought, oh, well, why don't we um, Run a, an alternative um, n- Right next to the cinemas And, um, and then get a minibus, you know <laughs> And... Uh, um, and then drop kids home, you know. So make... And we and in there we would be making tons of stuff in different art forms and um, films and you know, we'd cook and all sorts of things. And we had no money or anything. We didn't know about grants and we didn't know about public liability. And, you know, there was a number of hurdles like that where they'd... Uh, I can't... It must have been the councillor. Someone would say, well, you know, you'll need some public liability. we go, yep, what's that? <laughs> we'd, we'd do it all. And, and eventually I um, must have been... the how, however, we got in that building. Um, we wouldn't have been able to afford rent anyway. Uh, it's a bit sketchy now how we.
1: You are basically squatters. Yeah, we were squatters. Okay, yeah.
0: I was a I was a squatter, and so I just squatted <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> kept squatting, um, and uh, and it was really successful. And um, it, not everything about it, you know, there was no evaluation, there was no safety around the protocols about how to work with young people. Um, it was, it was like a young people came into this space and they started making stuff. And it, that, although I couldn't have articulated it then, that um, made me aware that there were programs that didn't have to be uh, welfare foc- focused in their structure, but could achieve welfare goals. And, um, you know, later on, I'd start to see that if you really worked that, that you could do it. Um, you, really cheaply in comparison to what it what it takes to um, you know pay yeah anyway we won't get into that but um, so so it became an alternative way of thinking and it brought the art and the social work together and it, it didn't go on for that long it was only eight weeks or something over a Christmas break and yeah the public and radio and various things got um, wind of it and and that it was with uh, um, my first girlfriend sort of doing it together so you know. It became a, um, yeah, it was just a way of, it was a foundation for other ways of thinking that came up later.
1: And then when did you move to Bernie?
0: Um, So I went to uh, Sydney College of the Arts to do design, which was an interesting campus then. It was um, art students and all the design students, everybody was sort of working together on very similar, similar curricula. It hadn't turned into the nightmare that design's become now. Um, and so it was, it was about ways of thinking. And I and I found it really interesting, except when you started to show unusual ways of thinking. And within the, um, you know, I was supposed, to, within the first year I was supposed to design a toothbrush handle. And so I did it using a stairwell in the college that so students couldn't get to the third or fourth floors. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say this, it's, it sounds cr- crude, but... You can take it out later. But um, the advertising and sort of marketing end of it was so offensive to me, you know, bearing in mind that I was sort of, you know, a zealot young man, um, that uh, I forget it was to do with marketing self-expression or something. Uh, Anyway, I did a very rigorously um, thought through and very sound... I defecated in a shoebox... (laughs) Okay. and gave it to the and handed it in as my project and from that moment I think I was gone for all money but um, it was it was sort of notorious in the year for a little while <laughs> um,
1: Scatological art has a, has a long history I That's understand. right
0: that's right but the point being that um, again I was you know try, I was seeing things in another way and I, I wouldn't do that now but um, I deferred and I think they didn't, didn't mind that I never came back. <laughs> and so it was after that that um, I found a way of expressing um, the art and the and the social work. And there was a lot of attention on the Gordon Franklin campaign. Mm. So Tasmania was in people's was resonating, and um, the Bernie Mills. This is in the early eighties. Had just begun. There were the picket lines, and there was, it had begun to downsize. Mm. Um, and, you know, it wasn't really political for me, but the thing was that there were... he was a town and someone who um, uh, was associated... Well, it was John, really, John Bakes. Um, and a friend of his um, said, do you want to come down and help run a... Um, you know, something... It was like an employment programme, but it was for kids whose parents would know, had spent the package in the casino that they'd got for, you know, early redundancy or whatever, and... Um, so the town was hurting a bit and I ran some drop-in centre um, employment programme, youth work, street worky things. But again, it very, very quickly became about art making and, um, and it was pretty unpaid. It was unpaid. Um, and so I quickly had to use those creative skills and so I put together shows to, to do in restaurants <laughs> <laughs> um, for poor unsuspecting diners. Now that I think about it, because there wasn't a lot happening on the northwest coast, it was pretty barren um, creatively. But there was a very strong dynamic under the underneath that everybody would yeah, leave. Yeah. Very creative, you know that thing of like a lemon, pit between your fingers, like the the Bernie. It, you know, it was like a mini city, and the things that happened for a minute, and then people would leave for Melbourne or or Hobart or wherever. So um, there was a space to create things, and you know, I eventually created a show that went for like two and a half hours for, <laughs> for restaurants. There was a music section and then there were two um, narrative sections and there was no break. Uh, it was it was called Scott Rankin with his pants down and I, ha- I wore all the costumes. It started with a, a cassock and I just take them off doing these different it's absolutely a disaster. I cannot believe I inflicted that on people, but I get paid $45 or something. So,
1: <laughs> Well, if you're getting such a princely sum, yep. who wouldn't uh, wear all the costumes for two and a half hours? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, my understanding is that the, uh, the company name Big Heart, which is spelt small h, capital A-R-T, uh, was designed because uh, the h could either be silent or not. And when you're talking to government agencies, you could call it Big Heart. And when you're talking to arts organisations, you could call it Big Art. Uh, it sort of reminds me of the dualism between uh, telling the maritime services you uh, le- le- live in the boat shed and telling the, the council you live on the boat. Uh, it's. Uh, it, it, but, but did you have that vision at the start as to what this would become? Um, uh,
0: yes. Um, the name. Uh, the name came, for you know, it really was for that reason. Mm. It was. Um, We're starting to think dramaturgically, still without naming it, and going. There are multiple audiences for what we do, um, and each one. They they need a different kind of attention, and um, you know the 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 name became um, like I was quite quick to understand that um, that the arts portfolios, if you like, and they when when you're still thinking of art as to do with filling hotel beds in cities. Mm. Um, they're not going to carry much weight unless it's around premier's departments and, you know, events. I mean, I didn't put in those terms then, but if if you can go, it is the right of everyone um, to be part of the story, then um, suddenly story is front and centre. And if you're not in the story, you're invisible. And if you're invisible, you get hurt. And if you get hurt, you display anger. And in the crudest terms, that costs the taxpayer a lot of money. So if you can... Um, see that it is important that everybody has that cultural right and that they can come into the um, the mainstream story-making and be visible, then you suddenly have a bit more clout around what art is doing. And then if you section that up, you're really talking about um, the heart of the work. And, you know, you can start to say, well, 97% of the young people in Australia don't ever come to the attention of police, and yet they, they are... Um, Maligned as the the offenders, the constant offenders, and of those that do in any small town, if you start to look at the the issues playing into that um, tiny demographic, um, and split it down to not the ones who go, oops, sorry, but down to the recidivists, you see, um, you actually see people with a lot more courage than you, mm-hmm. because. I, you know they are surviving things that I wouldn't have. I would have reacted much more early. Now I'm not apologising for the crime at all, but um, but if you want to have the conversation about those people with government or with um, with philanthropists or people with good hearts, then you can say um, you can uh, you can work with people who are in intergenerational welfare settings that have incredible levels of need for whom uh, they are so immune to, to the benefits of welfare that they can only cost more money and pass it on to the next generation. Or you can look at what the welfare is trying to achieve and see that um, art is not a soft option. It's a, it's a pathway that creates moments of identity work followed by moments of cultural work, followed by other moments of identity work, and etc. And if you give that young person a childhood again... So three years—that's sort of—it's—it's now three to five, but you know, three years. Most young people will seize the opportunity and do the work themselves um, because of the tasks and opportunities you're putting in front of them. Now, that's not 100% the case because um, there are community safeties, there's self-harm safeties, there's you know worker safeties, um, and there's do-no-harm safeties, and some of the. Um, structure I- around traditional welfare approaches um, need to sit within what you're doing. But um, the name allows you to speak very different languages and cut through. If I was coming to see you in your office in a different guise, I would want to get to the core of what you need to hear very quickly and I wouldn't be starting with art necessarily.
1: <laughs> so let me get you to give us a snapshot of a couple of your, uh, your best-known projects. Um, junk Theory, which came out of the Cronulla... Bryants in two thousand and five. Tell us about that.
0: Junk theory uh, was an attempt, dramaturgically, in terms of community dramaturgy. If you think of um, how do you, how can you shift in positive ways the image that's surrounding something, you need to give candy to the media in the short term. But you also need to be thinking of the ground of what you're doing, the solidity of that. It's it's. Um, uh, not just somebody's opinion. So you need to be um, in the process with the Cronulla community, mm. and then you need to think in a savvy way about where you're going to place the work that these people are um, making, as as you as you, to, to you know build a, um, a shift. Um, and so you think about the power base in Sydney, and essentially it's the foreshore of Sydney. So. Um, or Port Hacking in Sydney, Port Jackson and Botany Bay and, you know, Pitwater. So we we put together, using the junk, which is an alien outsider figure in the in the ocean of plastic boats on the harbour, um, you know, we're just thinking about that I and mean, then we thought about the square sails and they're almost cinema screens and then mm. um, we thought about is it possible to get the tech right and to build, um, you know, short throw lenses and get the projectors on the boat and mask the sails and then get the sails in the right position and, and you've got three mini screens and then is it possible to build the sound system onto the boat so that you, the engine is super quiet and then there's, but there's this beautiful music and can you arrive at, at um, you know, Point Piper to uh, a media mogul's um, front door and you've got a very shallow draft vessel, you know, so you can go very close to the shore um, and could you just arrive sort of and they hear this sound and they are sounds of the rest of, you know, cultures from that is it, that culturally different, if you like. Mm. And and then can you use those screens with films and stills and portraiture to show the different faces of the, this place? And then can you have a car on the shore knocking on the door with some fortune cookies, which have messages inside that are, um, uh, you know, r- created with these cultures that are in Sutherland Shire and then can you um, do that by stealth over some weeks uh, in the summer period, the festival period, and um, and get that that media candy out there onto screens and, in, you know, the start of the news and the end of the news and places of um, where people are going, what is that, what is that? Mm. And then you can begin to play, you know, with fishermen, in, you know, on seawalls or wharves and you can rock up to lovers, and you know, on, who are kissing on park benches and, and you can... Um, you know, we was this was two thousand five six, so it was hard to do. But we were just playing with the technology of texting us on the boat and us putting up a message, um, you know, for the lovers on the park bench. So it was instilling the opposite energy of um, if you if you look at the hurt in those young men, um, they they were also fueled with some, you know, um, stimulants, but. Um, they they were fearful of a shift in the narrative. And so they were pr- protecting the chapter that they were familiar with. And um, it erupted because um, some other community development things were not taking place in Sutherland Shire. And um, so there was a fear of the other, the alien, mm-hmm. and then people were not aware that there were so many people from so many different cultures living in the Shire because the story was wrong and we were just a story maker in that context for the the whole, you know, dramaturgical pool of Sydney. That was a big answer.
1: (laughs) No, it's great. Uh, So uh, let's jump on to Namajira, one of your uh, more more recent projects. Uh, Tell us about that one.
0: Um, Yeah, so Namajira came out of... The, the the audience breath um, on another very well-received and popular um, show called Napaji Napaji, which was working with um, the Pitjantjara people um, looking at, do you mind if I just explain this a little? Please. So the found, this is the foundation of it. If you think of, um, you know, I've used this illustration a couple of times, but if you if you go to France and you stand at the base of Eiffel Tower of the Eiffel Tower, we all know how to say hello to to the people on whose country that is. But if you go to the base of Uluru, almost no Australians would know how to say hello in in um, And so you know, Palya and way Palya, a, a very polite way of um, speaking. And there's a reason for that, and the reason is to do with um, not having the conduit to deliver. Um, funding to schools to interest students in Aboriginal languages nationally, Mm. you know, and a fear of the fact that there are, you know, 150 of them um, or whatever the, you know, intact language number is now. But so we were working with um, Trevor Jamison, really great Australian actor, who um, we were starting to try and tell the um, Maralinga story, uh, you know, Nine explosions, a thousand times more powerful than Hiroshima. The only people to be bombed by their own government in peacetime. A whole lot of, you know, amazing things. The similarities between the um, servicemen who were who were kind of guinea pigs as well. Um, and that show was trying to tell that story in the context context of language. And so we would begin the show by um, getting the audience to learn heads and shoulders, knees and toes in in Pijintera, um, in in an exchange. Um, and t- to take the white stare, the white festival stare off the Aboriginal um, cast, um, because you feel very vulnerable learning a language and then having to sing. <laughs> um, and at the end of that show, w- we were doing we were doing some drawing with a young man, a Pigeon young man, who um, would draw on stage, just a little bit of drawing on the w- uh, wall. And um, his name was Elton Weary, and he was a kin grandson to Albert Namajira. And we... Pretty unaware at that point, but when we introduced everybody in the cast during during the end of the show, um, Trevor would say, "And this is Elton Weary, or this is Elton, um, a kin grandson of Albert Namajira and, and, and the audience would go, ah! And so that was an, that was a you know one second theatrical work from the audience back to us. What is that? What's contained? In, why did, wherever we did that? What was the intake of breath? And um, so we started to think about that um, family and that narrative, and then we went and spoke to with Elton. We went and spoke to the family and said, um, uh, because it was coming up to the fiftieth anniversary of his passing, we said, um, "Do you do you think there's some some way we could work together to tell this story that is already already taking the breath away?" Mm. And they said, yes, there is, and we began working in that community and, and at Hermansburg or in Daria. And they, in, always in this process of listening, we're searching for an iconic bit of the larger, the meta-narrative of the country. And, and sure enough, um, it came up that their deepest concern was the embarrassment, the sort of shame in a way, of not having the, cop- not only the copyright in, in their grandfather's story. I mean, in their grandfather's art, and so they, they, to them it felt partly um, an economic thing, but a lot of it was to do with the the meaning and the pain of that. But you couldn't show a you couldn't um, show a, a picture a photograph that had one of his works in it without getting permission. You couldn't show pictures of his works, and so it couldn't be easily in the HSC. It couldn't couldn't be easily in a gallery, though. You know, and it wasn't coming from a malicious place. We can go into that later if, if you like, but. Um, here was this tragedy, which was also their gift, the country. You know, a, a terrible thing that was, um, terrible injustice, but it was also a, an asset, a gift that allowed them to enter into a conversation, um, not going, help us, but but um, going, you need, th- this is not our problem, this is something you need to hear for your own heart to the rest of the country, which made the show very powerful. And so we we then began building the... The show, uh, it was it designed to tour, and fifty thousand people saw it. But at the same time, we were building documentary. We were running, um, I think it was seventeen hundred workshops in the in with the community with younger people. We were um, uh, taking exhibitions on the road with us and selling them out, so the, the families could you know get the income. We were building the the watercolor app for an iPhone. An iPad and so that people could experience a new kind of tech, technolo- mm. technological version of it and then um, you know there was a range of media strategies around that and event- and then eventually the show was very popular um, and Kevin you know we, there was an invitation to take the show to South Bank in London and Kevin immediately said you know maybe we could meet the Queen and if you see the documentary you understand why we didn't know at the time but he wanted Um, you know, he knew that the crown was on the policeman's badge and he knew, um, you know, he he expresses it as wanting some protect is how he said it in this kind of very vulnerable way. And he wanted to ask the Queen for a letter so that he couldn't be pushed out of his house or whatever. Um, So it was, there were all these things going on and going to London was, there was no idea about getting into Buckingham Palace, but... The royal family were incredibly connected through watercolor. You know, again, there's this art sitting there. Charles is a you know watercolourist and they're collectors. And and Prince Philip had had this enormous collection of uh, watercolors that I got when um, she was off. Uh, you know, doing it, th- and I just walked into a shop and I bought. You know, it was when
1: was this? When was he buying?
0: Uh, in that first, watercolor. that very first tour out to Alice in the in the fifties. Wow! And where she met. Albert and that he gave he gave them one of his pictures and so the the, the queen wanted to meet the grandchildren mm. and the grandchildren wanted to see where that painting was and so we was ju- it was just this wonderfully mad thing of being in buckingham palace for you know there was an ambassador from some from a country that got 3 minutes before us and then we were just in there chatting like it went on you know it was 20 minutes of time um and they were—they brought um, paintings in from their private homes, and they were handling them all, turning them around so they could show the date. And they were all—and Mrs. Namajira, um, uh, she she gave them a, a painting that she'd done, specially, and so did Kevin. And it was a, um, you know, a great moment. But the key to it was, you know, from from um, Buckingham Palace to homeless in Alice, and we weren't allowed to be political. Um, much like this podcast.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> the Queen and I have those rules, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> but, um, but but the media was very interested in it. The Guardian and the Times and the big stories and then the stories came back here. And it, what, what I'm trying to paint the picture of is the art that, that we were making sat alongside um, the things that we were building in terms of the community and the, those shifts mm. and the workshops mm. and the next generations and the drive that we were... Um, the, the thing that we were driving, which was the buyback of the copyright, the setting up of the Namajira Trust, um, and, you know, well-being for, for that um, community. And as probably your listeners may have read, um, the copyright was handed back or bought back for a dollar. And um, Dick Smith raised a quarter of a million to go in the trust. Um and for us that was a really interesting time because it was great that he, that he did that and it was expressed a little bit in the media that um, it just took 15, a 15-minute 15 phone call to do. But um, there was an eight-year campaign from us, plus a, plus a, you know, since the early 80s campaign by the Namajiras, and that was sort of a campaign of tears from them with, no, with invisibility outside the story, locked out of the narrative. And then our skills of going, okay, um you're clever we're clever can we bring this back into the story and as soon as it was in the story people were signing up in the foyer friends of the namajiras and you know putting money into building towards this trust um and to me that is in a sense it's a perfect picture of um of art making that interests me anyway like i'm not um particularly interested i think it's wonderful um but I'm not particularly interested in, in the heritage arts um, uh, or the current use of them as the magnet for sus- subscribers and, the, and, the, and we won't go down, far down that line. And I'm, you know, um, I'm much more interested in the way in which you, you, you lose, like Aboriginal people lose the word art. There isn't one, and it is the whole of life. And so there are dramaturgies and interactions and ways in which it's powerful. And then there are times when it's less powerful.
1: So, Scott, I'm, I'm interested in putting together a couple of things you've uh, you've said. You've spoken about the uh, 650,000 hours we uh, we have on the planet. Um, I've just installed on Google Chrome an extension which uh, every time you open up a new tab tells you how many days you have left on the planet. Uh, currently, <laughs> I'm at uh, eleven thousand five hundred or so, and uh, so it helps focus the mind. <laughs> uh, but then you've also talked about uh, this. Uh, uh, snowstorm effect in which uh, white guys arrive in an Indigenous community, flutter down to the ground and then uh, uh, melted melted away before you know it. How do you reconcile your desire to get things done and the incredible energy and hunger you have with the need to take your time on the Indigenous projects that have become the hallmark of your work?
0: Um, it's a really great question and um, I, I don't Aside from the the cultural difference and the care and and some protocols, um working with skateboarders in Melbourne is not that different in the feel and the you know, the ease with which you can do harm and the the, the um very open ears you have to have um and the steps um that you take um to working in an aboriginal community. Um so we our thing is invisibility, within in the story, and um, and so we're just essentially time is your friend and silence is your friend and there is the tendency to bring um, a version of the solution. Um, there is the tendency in thinking that um, time is like metropolitan time and you and so we need who's the target group? How do we divide these cohorts up? What is the what is the um, how are we going to measure this and uh, and they are the language of manufacturing doesn't work in those contexts. So what that what ends up happening is um, the the when you put all those things together, there is a longing, I think, that you see a lot. But you've also got your um, Qantas board. I mean, you've also got your whichever airline you want <laughs> your boarding pass to go. You know, like um, and. If you want to, if you want to stop that, then you need to do something quite serious, and that is to say, you can't do it in three years, or you can't. I mean, a, a long project is twenty-six weeks in the terms that we're talking. Mm. Um, three years is a short project. I'm working at working at the moment, in Robyn at the moment, where we're the. This is not a boast. It's just a. It's, it's just a fact. We're the only non-Aboriginal um, agency living in town, aside from the police who live behind wire yet i don't i don't know that we ever lock our houses and it's featured in the media as as a place of a crime wave and yet um you know all our workers want to bring their children up there because of the the beauty of the family relationships and the freedom in the early childhood and you know it is a it is the community that's taught me the most um so
1: and This is on the Colorathon project. Oh,
0: right? it's it's a broader project. The Colorathon is part of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the the point being that we've we've been there for seven years and we've just committed to staying for five five more. And we are a company that doesn't believe in sustainability. The, the use of that word's you've got to be really super careful. We we all want things to end. Mm. It's 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 a kind of madness to go um, that we're going to sustain this forever. I mean, we want better things to come, so other things have to move out of the way. And and there is always the forgetting and the end of things. You, the, the most beautiful theatre show you could ever see, or film or whatever, it, it's tiny bits lodge with you and it becomes part of your narrative. So in the, that's very unusual for us to stay for that length of time, but the community and the country is telling us what's required. Um, and if you begin to work like that, then you need to say, to resource companies who are maybe trying to buy a social licence or to arts funding bodies who, um, who are no longer able to fund for the urgencies of the 21st century or, you know, um, all kinds of other departments and agencies, the real cost of this is this amount of time. And the real cost of this is this amount of time plus the very best people. And the very best people won't be... Um, necessarily, the, those with the PhD, they might be those with the values PhD, the integrity PhD, and and the authenticity to to stay. And that's that's um, once you get those things in place, the snowstorm doesn't exist. And and you you know our biggest problem, <laughs> you know, two really fantastic workers who are up there, we couldn't get couldn't get a bank any bank um, to. Allow us to buy a house in roben because um, they were so scared would have no value, you know, <laughs> and and these are people who are dying to to invest their life, you know, be there, and they're brilliant, you know, VR and AR workers and youth workers and um, you know, so it's the opposite for us of the snowstorm in a sense, but we have th- th- we we have also ourselves on many occasions made. That those mistakes, those kinds of mistakes, and continue to make them.
1: You've uh, lost any hint for me of the uh, the shy kid that you describe in uh, in childhood. Uh, when did that go?
0: Um, I don't think it, it has gone. Um, I think you're just a very good actor. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, you know, uh, I'm a very, I'm actually quite a shy person, a very quiet person. I live. Where I live, there's 16 people, 16 other houses. And to me, sometimes when I get back there, because I am on the road a lot, um, you know, uh, I, I won't leave for five days. Di- I'll go, oh, I better I better leave. <laughs> I better go and see what's happening downtown. Um, and, you know, my partner Rebecca is similar and she's a visual artist. And um, it's... I tend to... There's this terrible thing that I, you know... Um, if I was coming to see you and your other guys, I would know that I have to approach your office and not listen to certain parts of my, you know, person. Uh, you know, because I, I can blush very intensely. And, and I know when, that I have to sit with, within the blush and go get to the other side of, you know, swim across it and go, this, this is because it's hard for you to declare now the parts of you that are still fraudulent, you know. the, the, the It's very hard in this world to, to sit in the unknowing, you know, just to say I don't know, uh, but not necessarily intellectually, but to go, um, I'm in, I'm on a continuum of 650,000 hours of mistakes of which many um, did no good at all, some did harm and some turned into fantastic compost for, for really good stuff.
1: You had a phrase before, Scott, the... Uh uh, talking about the uh, disclosing the fraudulent parts would almost I, I can almost kind of hear a, a Catholic priest speaking about that. There was a sort of a confessional element to it. Um, um, I like the idea, I suppose, of recognising at any point in your life that there's there's flawed parts of yourself that you're carrying around.
0: Yeah, I mean we're all you know um, floating icebergs in the sea of humanity showing the, the, the known tip and then fearing the exploring who we really are. And um, it's a very, it's very dangerous and, you know, pe- people would say, um, you know, when, when the full force of my personality is at work on creating a project or a show or whatever, it's quite a formidable thing.
1: What advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: Um, see a therapist so you don't blush in front of important people no <laughs> um, sail more <laughs> um, I think I would, would I think I was super lucky to meet some um, people early who were uh, on sort of deeper quests and um and I was quite counter-dependent. And I would have said, yep, keep going with that, but, but try, and, try and get to the other bit sooner so you can listen earlier. Um, and, you know, um, sometimes my work is much more interesting now. I you mean, know, I don't need to create another play if I don't, you know, I can, but whatever. Um, some of the most interesting work is talking with um, millennials who are much maligned, but I think uh, um, have found themselves by the um, more corrosive elements of our addiction to progress as, as a baby boomers and below, and they've found themselves put in a position where they, they need to, they have to, um, by necessity, base more of themselves on values and value chains and um, experiences and... Which is much more, much closer to a gentle uh, and humane existentialism, a sort of a um, existentialism light. <laughs> um, you know, like uh, the, they're, they're much earlier on the, already on the deeper questions, and, and I'd love to save them a decade by going, um, yeah, that all that stuff is true. Just your ego's driving this. Um, they're, they're, if you can commit yourself to the savvy and campaigning ends of things. Um, if you can go if you find yourself in an adversarial battle you're almost certainly wrong you know you're you're almost certainly not in the right place. You can live within the contradictions of um you know uh, a wise man says it in the documentary about the Napogee Napogee show he's he's saying to Trevor and I um Trevor's asking him a question about is this little thing wrong? Should we put this in the show? Should I mention my father's name has passed away and this wise man says, Trevor, it's all wrong. Everything you're doing is wrong. Keep doing it. And Trevor, talk about the life. Mm. And um, uh, and so saying to younger people, younger people, forget the binary, habitual binary nature of it. Sit within the mistakes, make them carefully and, and listen, you know, be within, sit within the forgiveness of, you know, the generosity of communities, etc. And they're they're the things that I wish I'd listened to, that I wish I could have said to my younger self in in those teen years. But in some ways, you know, far too much was going on in that poor little head of mine at the time. So, yeah.
1: So I'm curious, as somebody who underwent quite a bit of physical deprivation or material deprivation in your childhood, um, how you think about trying to, uh, as a parent bring up kids with a sense of grit or resilience, despite the fact that their material circumstances are presumably far better than those that, uh, that you experienced?
0: Yeah, yeah, look, and, and I mean, it, it's a balanced thing with that because it was... Um, ..there was no deprivation unless there's an awareness of the alternative. Um, so the fact that um, I was barefoot all the time and in the water all the time on the on the river all the time and when it came when piers my mate you know who i used to um, play with when he suddenly wanted to do this thing called get married at 18 or i can't remember how, old, how old, it it might have been 19 i don't know um i didn't have any and i he wanted me to be the best man i didn't have any shoes you know and now that wasn't a i mean i had sand you know international volleys with holes for where your toes poke out and things but i didn't have any um you know, proper shoes. And, but so there was no deprivation. There was just excitement and freedom. And then you just kind of realise... Th- those, ex- those experiences y- yeah, yeah. seem
1: to have left you extraordinarily tough and, yeah, and, and the, resilient. Like, yeah. uh, your children have far more material resources are, are, are around them. How do you give them the same toughness you grew up with?
0: Gotcha, yeah, so... Without hurting them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, Darcy and Lockie and Ginger... Ginger's just finished her HSC. Lockie's a wooden boat shipwright, as it happens, and and Darcy's um kind of, he's done environmental design, and they are on they're on similar trajectories. And we, you know, a playwright and an art, and an artist. We we I was late in my forties before we could um, contemplate buying um a ha- you know a, a barn essentially in the poorest electorate in the poorest state in the country so um, and the people around you know when we managed to buy it they said "You, how much are you paying for that and it was, it was less than a one bedroom flat in Sydney or Melbourne you know for um, waterfront acreage you know that kind of feel so huge joy about that um, but uh, the kids were already knew something of the same, the same. Um, but for me the the real joy was being able to um, go. What do you want? <laughs> you know, and just um, be fairly entrepreneurial. Mm. Like take that skill of my my old man more than my mum, just to conjure something out of nothing. Take it another few steps, mm. because that's you know that's both true in work. It's true in that family life. And if you, I mean, if you look at big art, um, in twenty five years, it's it's fifty million in project funding. You know, single grant funding, um, and it's 150 million in applications. So that's carving out money for disadvantaged communities, and there is a there is something of that language in in the way in which you can um, give your family a great, really great time. But at the moment, I couldn't, you know, consider retire. You know, I'm, I haven't paid off anything yet. <laughs> you know, so but money's, you know, it, money isn't. It, it's that thing that you know we're we're convinced in this mad way with these six hundred fifty thousand hours that that we that we own profit and and yet um, we're either we're only ever going to be a great steward of it or a poor steward of it. So yeah, some of the stewarding of it could be you know instilling the values in your children that that allows them to continue stewarding you know. Second and third and fourth generation dynasty But it's really unusual That that would be the best way Of, of um, stewarding um, What's come from your labour the ch- the, My children um, You know it, it was a privilege basically To to bring them up that way And and they're You know he's <laughs> making a lot more money than me As a wooden <laughs> boat shipwright <laughs> uh,
1: When are you most happy?
0: Um when I'm um, sailing uh, a a vane boat, a boat that's too too small that only teenagers should sail, uh, off uh, in the kind of crystal waters of Bass Strait um, that can turn on you, in under the eaves of Table Cape, um, with a few friends, and I'm I actually you know, you might think I'm the sort of person who wouldn't like competitive sailing, but um, I really like uh, getting in the zone with the science of the sailing, like the incremental thing that it's, that you can spend three hours making something go minutely faster at great muscle cost and, and, and losing, um, losing myself. Um, and it becomes, you know, it becomes close to the, uh, meditative arts and you know the the release of ketone and things that can happen if you fast and think. You know,
1: what happened to the old Susie Wong, by the way?
0: Susie, oh, I'm in a i fi- I'm five years into the rabbit warren of completely restoring the boat, and I'm.
1: You you took it from Sydney to Tasmania.
0: Yeah. Well, when when we used the boat for junk theory. Um, it's an antique Chinese junk. It's exactly the same age as me. It was launched when I was born. And so it's for a wooden boat, it's, it's old. And we foolishly tra- it did Sydney and, the, and it was leaking a bit there. And I didn't tell any of the guests, you know, when we had premiers and people <laughs> on board. But it was leaking a bit and the pumps were going. But then we trucked it across the Hay Plains in a heat wave <laughs> and put it into the Torrens to do it in Adelaide. Um, and put it in with a crane and went, oh, pull it out. <laughs> and then um, a lot of tim- timber had moved and we cobbled it together with, with copper and sycophlex and got it floating. And so we could invite Mike Ram on board, and because that was another part of it to bring people into contact with it. And, um, and then proceeded to spend weeks dodging but running into shopping trolleys and things in the shallow torrents with an ineffective echo you know, anyway, trying to dodge our way, um, and then took it on another truck badly to um, Hobart and then again to Launceston. And by the end of that, it, um, it really broke the back of Susie. So it was a complete rebuild and it was a thing of going, is, it, is this worth it? But it um, that the, the arts that built that boat in, you know, the, and the craft of it in Hong Kong are pretty well gone. The the single t- you spend your whole life making the keel or your whole life making the rudder um, so it's been it's a little bit like the axe handle and <laughs> axe head but it it's been um, rebuilt and it's killing me I mean I, I have, haven't done it but both my sons worked on it Lockheed did his apprenticeship um, on it and uh, he's now moved on <laughs> um, and I can't quite finish I'm like I'm four months from finishing <laughs> But I'm, I'm out of money for it. So, it's. I'm glad you brought that up. It's. It's absolutely killing me.
1: <laughs> sounds, sounds like quite a painful topic. There. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy?
0: Well, I I do run and sail, but I'm I'm travelling a lot and I'm in places like hotel rooms a lot, uh, and I um, find, you know. Um, Gymnasiums, and you know, I can't do it, do that. So, um, trying to get exercise is hard when I'm away, it's great when I'm on the block. Um, and mentally healthy, um, sailing's part of it. There is a you know, there are some old texts that point you in in the direction of the importance of, um, Going with the much bigger part of yourself than than the uh, the way that the brain insists you work. So, um, working through ways of quieting the brain down. So. Um,
1: and, any text you'd recommend to our listeners?
0: Um, look, I mean, there are there are. I think it's one of those things with um, with books because they sit on a shelf and then they sit on the shelf of your life so you come you come to a book with deep experience and that's where it resonates so and then you move on and there's another book and somebody else might come to it at a very different moment and they'll go what but you know um yeah you know Viktor Frankl's um Man's Search for Meaning kind of is a crisp look at um the deep dive into philosophy um, I think there's some really clear things that can ma- can you know mean you don't waste your time. Kind of um, the I don't know the original name, but the Cloud of Unknowing, I think it is from the f- 14th. I don't know. I'd have to look back. Um, I think the um, there's a fiction called Stoner. I don't know if it's not very. I don't think it's very well known, but which is just a portrait portrait of a life, Um, lived well and lived tragically, but, you know, best attempts, um, which I, you know, I found really moving, um, compelling or, you know, pushing you forward. Um, Those sit there as important.
1: And finally, Scott, what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: I think there's a big assumption there that <laughs> um, you might make me blush. <laughs> uh, <laughs> beyond those that I've mentioned, I'd, I'd have to... Um, there's a f- It's hard to put it into one, you know, but there's a woman in Canberra uh, in hospital as we speak, in the in the high dependency unit who is has has pushed on through um, a form of cancer and um, she's remaking you know, the doctors are remaking her immunity and things um, and she wouldn't, she would die, you know, <laughs> I mean that's the wrong word to use in that context, but she would be mortified she doesn't know um, well, she does, I've said it, but she has trouble accepting how vital this, the simple act of um, being there in moments of crises of meaning and not trying to be brilliant, trying to, um, you know, be... Um, uh, cut through your, your bullshit and be savvy and... Um, uh, Focus you on what matters, and um, and is a you know it's a very simple life. It's it's a life of um, public service in in the APS mm. form, of, you know, kind of a thankless life of public service. But in positions where wisdom was was in the serving, not in the TEPSEC. <laughs> um, so not in the position. You know, it was in the mm. in the way in which you brought things to the position. Um, and yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm thinking about her, but I often, when I, when you know, I'm not particularly comfortable with the awards things that have been happening, um, and I and I often will text her about stuff, and she'll she'll say things that are you know pithy and exactly right, and um, so um, she's like that, but also sometimes we don't know, you know. Um, we think for other people we need to have a level of acute brilliance but it's like um parenting it's being there is 90% you know and and often um it's it's providing the it's providing the moment in which the person's doing the work so john bakes was like that for me john you know um uh, would be the first to admit that in in a Intellectual discussion Or a moment of Winning an argument or You know Whatever it might be He, he would I, I You know I could go in You know That's not his Forte But his forte Forte We used to come to meetings To Canberra When we were trying to form the company In that very Very difficult Nineties um, And um, Hadn't got in the swing Of how you fund things Or whatever And he would listen in a meeting and I would speak and then um, we'd come out of the meeting and he'd say this is what happened and then, then I would recalibrate the mm. um, and it was for him it was um, not about this is what you said it was this is what the the person that you were speaking to needed to hear for, for him to be or her to be in the position where um, you know it was aligned with this really great thing that needs to happen in a community mm. um, so John, he doesn't get a lot of thanks and he's a piker because he got out at 15 years. So (laughs) got out a Big eye.
1: So, yeah. And you're uh, 25 and uh, still going strong. But uh, Scott Rankin, thank you very much for taking the time to share your wisdom on The Good Life podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.